Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to pick up part two on the Tao Te Ching. And I want to pick up on chapter 19, and we're going to finish up the book one today. And then we may split the next uh, part of this book two into two episodes also. Uh, we'll have to see how that goes time-wise. But we're going to finish up book one today. Um, chapter 19 Cut off sage, sageliness, abandon wisdom, and the people will benefit 100-fold. Cut off benevolence, abandon righteousness, and the people will return to being filial and kind. Cut off cleverness, abandon profit, and robbers and thieves will be no more. This might leave the people lacking in culture, so give them something with which to identify. Manifest plainness, embrace simplicity. Okay, this passage is really, you know, kind of one of those get back to the simpler life uh, passages, which, you know, for the modern reader, that might seem strange because we always pick some time, you know, within our past that was a much simpler time. And here's someone writing over 2,000 years ago that's talking about, you know, get back to the simpler times. So you can see this is a recurring idea in society. This is something that comes up over and over again. It kind of goes back to that idea of the golden age of the past. Or as we talked about last time with Rousseau a little bit, that state of nature where things were perfect. And, you know, cut off cleverness, abandon profit, and robbers and thieves will be no more. When you don't have a lot of uh, fancy things to steal, you kind of cut down the desire for it. When you put all of your desires on wealth and material things, you actually encourage theft because you start to have people connect their sense of self with their with a with a dollar amount or with an amount of what they own um you know the saying that you have in american capitalism is he who dies with the most toys wins and this is something that this is specifically warning against uh chapter 20 cut off learning and be without worry how much distance is there really between agreement and flattery um this, again, is something you've seen in lots of different traditions. You know, the idea that the more you know, the more unhappy you'll be. Um, ignorance is bliss is kind of a modern uh, version of this. You know, the more you know about things and the more you try to, to know about things, the more you're going to be unhappy because you're going to see lots of imperfections. You're going to see lots of gaps between the way the world really is and what it could be. <clears throat> how much distance is there between agreement and flattery? You know, this this line is basically like, um, you know, how much of it when you want someone to agree with you, when you want um, to prove your point, uh, are you just doing it so that you can sort of get that boost? Um, you know, we, we often have talked about, uh, you know, external shiny things um, and people building their value off of that. But this is also taking a swipe at, well, if you, you know, have to be, have other people telling you you're smart, is this really that different? Uh, the common folk are bright and brilliant. I am alone, I alone am muddled and confused. The common folk are careful and discriminating. I alone am dull and inattentive. So one of the things that, um, this, this has also is sort of a sense of, uh, sort of envy of the simple people. You know, the simple people just live life and don't think about things too much, and, and therefore they have a happier 
life and they focus on the only things they focus on are the things that are important to day-to-day -day life. Now, one of the things you might think about this as um, a modern parallel or a parallel that's easy to imagine, you know, think about how much people who have advanced degrees sometimes can't do the most simple physical project. Like, for example, you may have an advanced degree in, you know, uh, computers, but can you fix a plugged sink or a plugged toilet? You know, and sometimes when you get into these, you know, advanced states of knowledge, uh, oftentimes the, the trade-off is losing some of those simpler skills. So this is what he, he's talking about when he, you know, praises the common people. Uh, they know how to do things for themselves that, you know, the wealthy and the elites and the intelligent people might have to actually hire someone to do. Every level of society has wisdom, and this is one of the things I've always believed. Everybody on the planet can teach you something. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, whether they teach you useful skills or teach you things that are, well, don't do it that way because that doesn't work. Uh, chapter 21. Um, in chapter... I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. 21. The outward appearance of great virtue comes from the way alone. As for the way, it is vague and elusive. Um, vague and elusive within an image, vague and elusive within a thing. So in other words, when you try to put your hand on something precisely, it slips away. And you can think about this in physics, um, you know, modern uh, connection to physics, you know, with the motion and the speed of particles. Physicists can either measure one or the other. When you measure the motion of a particle, um, I'm sorry, motion or position. Um, if you measure the motion of a particle, you lose the position. If you measure the position, you lose the motion, you lose the direction. So when you look, the more things you find, the more things you kind of have to let go. So while you're trying to be more and more precise, uh, you end up getting more and more vague sometimes. And think of it this way, too. You have the theory of chaos in mathematics and in physics where, you know, certain systems might start out where you can calculate the direction of a molecule or of a photon or something like that. But as time goes on, it becomes more and more complicated because there are more variables that play into it. And so this is kind of the idea of chaos or entropy growing over time. Uh, chaos is not really a lack of order, um, as most people mistakenly believe. Chaos is order that is too complex to grasp. It's too complex to calculate, and therefore a lot of people have just labeled it as chaos. Uh, but really it's not chaos. It's just much more order than we can comprehend. Uh, chapter 22 um, <clears throat> those who are crooked will be perfected. Those who are bent will be straight. Um, those who are empty will be full. Those who are worn will be renewed. This is something that he's talking about what will happen if people follow the sage, the one who's connected to the way. Uh, this is why sages embrace the one and serve as models for the whole world. They do not make a display of themselves and so are illustrious. They do not affirm their own views and so are well known. They do not brag about themselves and so are accorded merit. 
They do not boast about themselves and so are heard for a long time. So in other words, when you spend all of your time trying to show off, trying to prove you're right, prove you know what you're doing, uh, you tend to eventually end up looking foolish and you also don't move farther into uh, what you know. And so you end up being somebody who is very temporary. It's like a shooting star. You're you're a brilliant flash for a moment, but you don't leave much of an impact, a lasting impact. Whereas things that just do their thing and move on um, tend to leave more of a, a lasting impact. Okay. Uh, chapter 23. Uh, Be sparing with words is what comes naturally, and so a blustery wind does not last all morning. A heavy downpour does not last all day. Um, this is kind of uh, the warning against being too intense. When you are too intense, intensity even in nature cannot be held up that long. It's going to be brief. Um, you know, the, the more intense the activity, the uh, more brief it will be. And this is kind of telling you to avoid that, that it's not intensity that's important, but duration. And you can think of this too as in, you know, you do something amazing once and that's short-lived, it happened once and never happens again, or you build character, you build ways of doing things, you build habits, and those habits are not flashy, but they can last a lifetime, they can last a lot longer than that one flashy moment. All right, let's go to 24. Those who stand on tiptoe cannot stand firm. Those who stride cannot go far. Those who make a display of themselves are not illustrious. Um, <clears throat> so this is, again, more warnings about being excessive. Anything that's excessive is not going to last. You know, this is why sprinters uh, don't run a marathon because you can't run at the rate of a sprinter and finish a marathon. It's a, it's a different type of running. It's a different type of skill. And so this is kind of a warning against that, you know, quick burst or that intensity that cannot be maintained. Um, if you want to run a marathon, you have to learn to run more at a steady pace. You have to be able to stretch out your energy over a longer period of time. Whereas with running a sprint, you run quickly and then you're done. Uh, chapter 25. People model themselves on the earth. The earth models itself on heaven. Heaven models itself on the way. The way models itself on what is natural. So this is, again is kind of going back to the way we should be. You know, and, and the way that, you know, really science does talk about, if you want to live, um, you know, a better life, you, you do have to live according to the way the world is. Um, you, you have to live according to the, you know, laws of your biology, the laws of physics, uh, things like this must be obeyed. Or you, um, you know, you're going to have yourself living in a fantasy world that's unrealistic. So, you know, People who are, and I think he would, you know, mean to say people who are um, grounded well, people who are intelligent, you know, model themselves after the way the world works. Um, and, you know, this is true. If you want to be successful, 
Think of a survivalist situation. You know, if you want to be successful, you have to do the things according to your nature. Like you have to have water, you have to have food, you have to have a certain amount of, you know, warmth. Uh, these things are the way the world is. And so if you can say, no, I'm, I'm just going to live on my intellect because I'm stranded in the desert uh, and I don't need to worry about these, you know, physical concerns of the world, you're going to end up dying. Uh, so that's part of what that's talking about. The earth models itself on heaven. Heaven models itself on the way. Basically, you know, to think of it in a modern perspective, everything models itself on the, the laws of nature. You know, nothing on the earth, nothing in the heavens, nothing in the way violates the laws of nature. This kind of is something that gets away from the concept of the supernatural, that the universe functions in certain ways and everything within that universe will follow those rules. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we know all the rules or even that we can know all of the rules, but, you know, this is kind of the idea that everything functions according to the rules of the universe. I'm going to skip around a little bit. I'm not going to do all of the chapters. I'm going to go to chapter 27. Um, and you kind of get a little bit of a sense of what a good and bad person is in here. Um, this is why sages are good at saving people and so never abandon people. Are good at saving things and so never abandon things. This is called inheriting enlightenment. And so the good person is a teacher of the bad the bad person is material for the good. <clears throat> now, if you think about this, um, especially those last two lines, um, this is the way society should be. And I, when I read this, I thought about the idea of prison. And, you know, we send people to prison to supposedly reform them. The problem is we send them around people, in, you know, to an environment of people who are usually worse than they are. You're not going to be reformed by being around people that are worse than you. You're going to pick up even more bad habits. If you want people to pick up good habits to actually be reformed, you need to send them to an environment where they're going to be getting the right kind of examples. And that's kind of what this means, is the good person is the teacher of the bad. You know, if you want bad people to be better, you have to give them that good example. And you have to show them that that good example is not only the right way, but it's the way that's more beneficial for them. And the second part, the bad person is material for the good. You know, this goes back to what I've said several times, is that everyone can teach you anything, something. You know, even if it's what they're teaching you is what not to do. So bad people are the material for the good. That kind of means they stand out as an example of the things that should not be done, the things that you should avoid. And, you know, in having a uh, cohesive way of living, a cohesive way of moving through the world, you need to know what to do and what to avoid. Okay, let's go to chapter 29. Those who will gain the world and do something with it, I see they will fail. For the world is a spiritual vessel and one cannot put it to use. Those who use it, ruin it. Those who grab hold of it, lose it. Um, this is why sages cast off whatever is extreme, extravagant, or excessive. In other words, the more you strive for the material things, the more they're going to slip away from you. Um, the more you put your emphasis on 
you know, what you have, the more it's going to go away. Now, you can think of this in a couple of ways. One is a literal way where you eventually lose all of these things. But the other is in a way that the more you have doesn't necessarily mean the happier you are. You know, look at, you know, the biographies of people who become very wealthy, very successful, especially very quickly. You know, and they had this idea that, oh, once I have a lot of money, all of my problems will be solved and I'll be happy. And then they get a lot of money and a lot of everything and they gain the world, so to speak. And they end up being even more unhappy than before they had anything. And this is because they're chasing after the physical. And the sage, the wise person, knows that this will never bring satisfaction. Because no matter how much you have, there's always more. There's always more you can get. If you're the richest person in the world, you can't stop. Because the second richest person will catch you and pass you and then you've lost. You're no longer the richest person in the world. And if you're not the richest person in the world, you keep have to keep striving. So in other words, the more you strive for things, the more it becomes empty. The, the more it creates uh, even more want, even more need. Okay, chapter 30. Um, One who serves a ruler with the way will never take the world of by force of arms. For such actions tend to come back in time, in kind, I'm sorry. Whenever an army reside, wherever an army resides, thorns and thistles grow. In the wake of a large campaign, bad harvests are sure to follow. So this starts to be something that is a little more of a warning, not for as much the common people, but as the people who are in power. Um, that war and taking things with force is not something that is ever really successful. Um, the, you know, the actions tend to come back in kind. And if you think about, you know, if you're living in survival of the strongest or rule of the strongest, um, that means you've always got to be the strongest. And the moment you're not, or the moment you fall asleep at the wrong time or look in the wrong direction at the wrong time, somebody will come up, hit you in the head, and then they're the strongest. So what you've taken away from others by force, someone will eventually take it away from you by force. So it's a very unstable way of being. And this is one of the problems that, you know, if you want to say, well, the early societies were based on, you know, might makes right, uh, that would have only got us to a certain level of um, advancement. And part of the reason that only gets you to a certain level of advancement is it doesn't create a stable environment. No one person can be strong long enough to keep everything stable. And so it's in a constant state of war. You know, this is why animals don't necessarily, you know, social animals do not necessarily build advanced civilizations when they're living by, you know, rule by the alpha, because there's always a war by the alpha. And each new alpha is only interested in keeping their power not necessarily moving the whole society forward. Um, in the wake of large camp of a large campaign, bad harvests are sure to follow. You know, think about how much destruction happens in warfare, how much um, regular life gets interrupted. You know, people think of warfare as it happens on battlefields between Army A and Army B, but that's not the way it really happens. It happens in cities, it happens in villages, it happens in farmland. And when you've got 
you know, wars ravaging through farmlands, when you've got wars going on, farmers don't have time to grow crops. Um, and if they do, they might, the crops might be stolen or burned so that one side makes sure, you know, the other side runs out of food. You know, that's a state of instability and it's going to give you bad crops. Um, let's see. Those who are good at military action achieve their goal and then stop. They do not dare to rely on arm, uh, rely on arms, force of arms. They achieve their goal but do not brag. So in other words, the people who are good at, uh, you know, military actions are the people who do it only to the point where their goal is met. They don't do it for glory. They don't do it, you know, to keep going. Let's say their goal was somebody invaded and you want to repel the invader. Well, once the invader is repelled, you've met your goal, you're done. You don't, you know, brag about it. Uh, you don't make a spectacle of it. You go back to regular life. Um, it, it's one of those things where if you do engage in war, it's something that should be done reluctantly. It shouldn't be done with, you know, great pleasure. Because war uh, tends to be a destabilizing uh, factor. Uh, it destabilizes mostly the lives of the poor and the workers. And those are the people who provide the foods, build the roads, things like that. So when those people are insecure, the whole system becomes insecure. Um, let's see. Let's go to chapter 31. Um, the way does not rely... Okay. At home, a cultivated person gives precedence to the left. At war, a cultivated person gives precedence to the right. Now, this doesn't really make sense unless you look at the, you know, the meanings of left and right. Um, and the left side of the body was associated with happiness. Um, the right side of the body was associated with sadness. So, you know, at home, a cultivated person um, looks to happiness, looks to stability, looks to things, you know, that keep people uh, living life and enjoying life. Um, at war, you have to focus on the sadness, the sadness of death, the sadness of destruction. Those are the things you have to put your focus on. Um, weapons are inauspicious instruments, not the instruments of a cultivated person. But if given no choice, the cultivated person will use them. So in other words, you shouldn't be quick to grab your weapon. You shouldn't be quick to grab your sword or your spear or to, you know, fight with your fists. This is something that should only be done for the cultivated person reluctantly when you're given no other choice. Um, it, it reminds me of a, of a quote from Asimov in the Foundation series um, where, you know, there's, there's a saying that violence is the last resort of the incompetent. In other words, if you're really wise and if you really know what you're doing, for the most part, you should be able to avoid violence. But this is not a pacifist, you know, philosophy, not saying you should avoid violence at all cost, because sometimes it might be necessary. And so this is a very realistic idea. You know, if somebody comes running at you with an axe, you can't really say, well, hey, let's sit down and have tea and talk this out. No, you have to immediately defend yourself. And so this is not a philosophy that is based on ideals as much 
as it does incorporate, you know, real-world possibilities. Uh, on auspicious occasions, precedence is given to the left. On inauspicious occasions, precedence is given to the right. In other words, things that are truly auspicious are going to be happy events. Uh, things that are inauspicious are going to be unhappy events. That's what people are going to focus on. A military victory is not a thing of beauty. To beautify victory is to delight in the slaughter of human beings. One who delights in the slaughter of human beings will not realize his ambitions in the world. So in other words, you know, this is something that most um, cultures really, especially as you move into the modern time period, and even, but even in the, the world of the ancients, I mean, you think about Sparta, you think about Rome, um, you know, you think about the Persian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, there was always sort of a a, you know, a sense that conquest is glorious, and, and that's a good thing. And this is saying, you know, there, no, it's not glorious, because what you're, uh, you know, what you're celebrating is the murder of human beings. So this is very much a humanistic um, philosophy. It's a and humanistic by, you know, human life has a value. You don't put that below some grand ideal. Uh, the, the grand ideal is everyday human beings. It's not, you know, victory for the, the strongest. Okay. 32. Um, the way is forever nameless. Unhewn wood is insignificant, yet no one in the world can master it. If barons and kings could preserve it, the myriad creatures would all defer to them of their own accord. Heaven and earth would unite and sweet dew would fall, and the people would be peaceful and just, through no, though no one so decrees. When unhewn wood is carved up, there are many names. Uh, now that there are names, no enough to stop. Okay, uh, this again is kind of a, the unhewn wood you can think of as the natural world the way it is. Um, the natural world the way it is is an amazing wonder. It's an amazing spectacle. And once you start altering it, you start hewing it, you start shaping it into something that is not natural, then you've perverted it. You've kind of moved it into a lower state. So this is something that is somewhat anti-technology. But it doesn't say, okay, we can go back to that earlier state necessarily. It says, stop where you are. Don't keep making it worse. Don't keep trying to control nature and shape nature more and more. And I think this is one of the things, if you really look at the present state of the environment, you can see that we're struggling with in, in reality at the moment. You know, global warming, pollution, uh, with you know, from plastics and different toxins and things like this. You know, these all come from things where we were trying to make the world, you know, a more structured thing for our use. You know, we got to the point where we felt that our technology could, um, you know, put us above nature, put us above, you know, the natural world, and we would become the lords and masters of the natural world. And one of the things that we're finding out is a lot of the technologies that we've come up with to make us the lords and the masters are now starting to be something that is threatening our existence at all, starting to become something where not only will we not be lords and masters, we won't even be here. You know, one of the things that people, you know, feel we're destroying the earth 
uh, is not really true. We're destroying the earth for us. We're making it uninhabitable for us and a lot of species that are like us. But the earth goes through cycles where it's been destroyed. And then eventually it heals itself and life goes on in different form and in a different direction. So basically what we're doing is we're making ourselves extinct and something will eventually come along, whether it's in a hundred thousand years, a million years, whatever, and it will be as if we were never here. And our mastery of the world will have come to nothing. Okay. Um, chapter 33, those who know others are knowledgeable. Those who know themselves are enlightened. Um, this, this is definitely one of the truisms that goes across, um, most philosophical traditions is that it, you know, you're, you're, you're doing really well when you know and understand others, but the really tough part is knowing and understanding yourself because most of us have blinders when it comes to ourselves. Uh, most people never really dive into themselves. And you can see this, you know, over and over again. If you want to be a sage, if you want to be a philosopher, if you want to be an enlightened person, the place to really look is within yourself. You know, Socrates, his commandment was know thyself. And, you know, if you look at the history of epistemology and, you know, the way the philosophies of mind and things like that, all of them in existentialism, all of them have this, we got to start with what we are first. You got to start with the thing you know the best. And if you don't know yourself, then you've got to start taking stock of what's really there. And I think most people don't do that. Most people go through their lives carrying the baggage someone else gave them. You know, your parents tell you you're supposed to be a certain way, your religious you know, affiliation tells you're supposed to be a certain way, your peer group, your country, your, you know, all of these things give you, this is who you are supposed to be. And most people just pick up all of that baggage and walk with it and don't ever set the baggage down and look at it and say, yes, this is me, or no, this isn't me at all. You know, and this is one of the things that knowing yourself is about is you pick up all the baggage you've been handed and all of us have a cultural perspective we were all born within a certain culture we weren't born in a vacuum um you know isolated from everything but what you have to do is sort of be able to step back and look at yourself and say how much of this stuff is me and how much of this stuff is not me and if it's not me then you really have to think about well what am i who am i Okay, um, those who conquer others have power. Those who conquer themselves are strong. Uh, when you conquer yourself, that means you're more in control of yourself. To, you know, be in power over other people is, is much easier than being in power over yourself. Because when you're in power over yourself, um, you have to be able to rein yourself in. You don't just act by your appetites or your fears. You you take into account what those are, and then you take a stronger control of how they affect what you do. Um, those who know com contentment are rich. Um, those who persevere have firm commitments. You know, this is going back to not being 
obsessed with what you have, with the external world, with the superficialities. When you're content with what you have, you're rich because you're not wasting your time chasing after things you don't have. You know, you have enough to eat. You have a place to live. You have clothes on your back. You have, you know, the things you need and you can just be happy with the things you have. And when you have a lack, well, you work until you fill that lack. Um, but you're not constantly chasing after a bigger house and a more expensive meal and a more expensive, you know, articles of clothing and things like that. Uh, chapter 34. How expansive is the great way, flowing to the left and to the right. The myriad of the myriad creatures rely upon it for life, and it turns none of them away. When its work is done, it claims no merit. It clothes and nourishes the myriad creatures, but not but does not lord over them, because it is always without desires. Um, one could consider it insignificant, because the myriad creatures all turn to it, and yet it does not lord over them. Um, okay, so this is a view of nature where nature provides everything. The world provides everything to all the creatures. It provides the things that the birds and the insects and, you know, the mammals and the fish all need to survive. But the earth doesn't say, okay, now you have to uh, be thankful for me or be thankful to me for all of these things I've given you. You know, in a lot of ways, this is kind of a shot at religion. And that religion that, you know, wants to um, say, you know, oh, you, you owe me this, um, that you owe the creator this. Um, this is much more of a, now nature creates for everyone and you don't owe anything to nature except to, you know, obviously take care of it. Don't pollute it, don't destroy it, you know, leave it in an inhabitable uh, way, the same way you received it. This also, you know, looking at a much, much later writer, uh, looks at a lot of what the um, sort of pantheistic ideas are. Um, ideas of uh, poets, too, like Walt Whitman, you know, where you have this idea that nature provides everything, but nature doesn't require you to do anything, just be a good shepherd and take care and don't destroy it. Um, this This sort of idea that everything we need is there just waiting for us um, if we just learn how to appreciate. Okay, uh, chapter 36. What you intend to shrink, you first must stretch. What you intend to weaken, you first must strengthen. What you intend to abandon, you first must make flourish. What you intend to steal from, you must. you first must provide for. So in other words, if you want to take something away, there has to be something there to take away. Um, but this is not, uh, I don't, I don't want to put this across like take away and as, as in a bad sense, take it away. Um, take it away is in more like get the benefits from it um, that are, that kind of freely flow out of it. So think about it this way. Um, if you want to live in a neighborhood where everyone is prosperous and gets along and you don't have to worry about somebody robbing you all the time, well, one of the ways to do that is to make sure your neighbors have what they need, you know, build them up to a spot where they feel comfortable, where they feel secure, where they don't feel like, 
you know, they're about to starve to death. And then you can sort of draw that benefit of it being a good place. But you've done that by bringing everything up. You haven't stolen things from people. You just, you've helped create a good environment where people have what they need, where people can take care of themselves. Therefore, they're not tempted to come after you and to take away what you have. Okay, uh, 37. The way does nothing and yet nothing, yet nothing is left undone. Um, should barons and kings be able to preserve it, the myriad creatures will transform themselves. Um, nameless unhewed wood is but freedom from desire. Without desire and still, the world will settle itself. Um, this is the last uh, chapter before you go into book two. And really, this kind of sets up the idea of, you know, this freeing from desire, which you also see again in lots of other religious traditions. You see it in Buddhism, you see it in asceticism, you know, this idea that the more you have desires, uh, the less happy you're going to be, the less free you're going to be. If you're ruled by your desires to have more things or have more money, you're constantly forced to work harder, to get more, to connive, to steal, to, you know, you're not free to just exist. Um, so removing yourself from desires, removing yourself from unnecessary attachments does give you a sense of freedom. You know, it's uh, one of the quotes from Fight Club is the more you own, the more you come to realize that the things you own, own you. Um, and this is true. You know, you, you can't have a lot, uh, have overabundance of everything without somewhere having to work extra hard for it. And also being, you know, fearful that someone will come along and steal it. You know, if you don't really have anything anybody wants to steal, you don't need a lock on your door because you've got nothing to steal. Um, and, you know, people say, well, you can defend your life. But your life is temporary anyways. If you live in fear of losing your life, you're going to have a miserable life because it's going to go anyway. Whether you like it or not, whether you're successful or not, um, you know, what matters is what you do with it while you're here. You can't control events that will kill you, whether it's a disease or, a, you know, something crashing into your house or a, a robber, you know, or a mass shooter, um, you know, you you try to avoid these things if possible, but you can't let it consume your life. Um, and so the really the only thing you own is your life. And eventually that will go as well. And when you say, well, I'm going to enjoy it while I'm here. And when it's gone, it's gone. You're freed. You're not living in fear. You're not living in a constant state of, I have to achieve this. I have to do this. Okay. I'm going to break off this episode here. The next time we're going to go into book two, and I'm going to have to look at it and see if I can do it all in one uh, segment or if I need to break it up into a couple of segments. But I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.